0: Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the content of this show does not reflect the views of Howard Community College and the legal information that we discuss here does not constitute legal advice. If you have an individual legal situation, make sure that you seek out an attorney who is knowledgeable in that area to consult before making any important decisions. I'd like to welcome back one of our most popular earlier guests, Cecilia Pays of the Mediation Center. Welcome back, Cece. Thank you for having me again.
1: I appreciate it, Bob.
0: Very much enjoyed having you last time and discussing some of the topics that we'll touch on kind of more peripherally today. Um, First of all, if people were interested in consulting you with regard to mediation, what's the best mechanism to do that?
1: Well, essentially, the best way to get a hold of me is to contact me by email. Okay. Um, and that is at agreeonit.com.
0: Agreeonit.com. That's a good one.
1: Yes. Yes. Not mine. I, I co-mediated with a clinical psychologist. It was his idea. And I was able to um, keep it with me when he retired. Ah. So, But to get a hold of me, it would be my nickname, Cece. Okay. C-E-E-C-E-E at agreeonit.com.
0: Got it. I'd like to touch on sort of how you got into this line of work. I know you've had a broad and diverse legal career. I know you were in Korea for a while doing stuff. I know you were at the Board of Veterans Appeals in downtown Washington, D.C. You were out in Western Maryland for a while. Kind of give the audience an idea of your background.
1: Well, I thought it was very um, cute to get married to a military man, the uniform and all, uh, when I graduated from law school. So I took the bar exam in Maryland first, because he was stationed at Fort Meade at the time. Well, little did I know that I would then move every two and a half to three and a half years, which ended up, um, I would get different types of jobs. Um, And I have taken three bar exams, although uh, I'm active in Maryland and Florida and have gone inactive Um, and actually let my membership of the bar lapse in Virginia. But it gave me a vast background. Korea, you mentioned, was actually one of my favorite places. I was able to work in the mid-'80s for um, the Judge Advocate General's office in Korea, and that gave me um, a real insight into how treaties are run and how negotiations with foreign nations are done.
0: Sounds like international mediation, as it were.
1: Yes, yes. And it was interesting because at the time they – population and the people who were negotiating for the Korean government or the, union, the labor unions were not used to female attorneys. So it was very interesting to see their reaction when I would walk into the room. And I kind of learned to be deferential to that aspect in order to be able to accomplish negotiations
0: just watching the movie Hidden Figures. I don't know if you've seen it with my wife, but there is an even greater level of that kind of thing in that movie. But it's kind of fascinating to see the evolution of things. Yes, yes, indeed. So you have done a good deal of domestic relations work in the past, correct?
1: Yes. uh, When I was in Florida with a firm and also since I've moved to Maryland in 1996 again for the third time, um, and while I was in Hagerstown, I was uh, involved in a lot of different uh, domestic types of cases. And ultimately, that's what my basic litigation practice evolved into.
0: Okay. So when did mediation rear its ugly head?
1: Well, it, it reared its beautiful head okay. <laughs> in uh, the year 2000, uh, okay. just shortly after I had started my own practice. Uh, it was uh, originally I took the, the civil 40-hour course because was I that had- that
0: the McPell University of Maryland thing or something?
1: It used to be McPell, yeah, yes. And yeah, so now yeah. it's the MSBA runs it itself.
0: Okay. but MSB uh, meaning Maryland State Bar Association.
1: Yes. Okay. And fortunately, I don't have to remember the initials Pell anymore, so that's no longer exists. But the long and the short of it was I was contacted by a gentleman out of Canada who wanted to try and establish a company that did internet mediation. And so I took the mediation course at the time with that in mind, ultimately took the additional domestic uh, mediation courses and found that that was really something that I that I felt I was better at almost than I'm... I am a good litigator, but I much preferred the mediation and resolving things.
0: So internet mediation, how was that? A, did it work out? And B, how was it supposed to work?
1: Well, the, the answer is it didn't work out because at the time, the internet wasn't as well developed. We didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have Skype. We didn't have – all you could do was go to a conference room and sit – we'd have one person in one conference room and another person uh, somewhere else. Uh, and you would mediate – Basically that way, so it wasn't it wasn't uh, financially uh, efficient okay because there were costs involved the The key thing too though, is that um, the connections weren't often that good and I'm a mediator that firmly believes that it's much better to have people face to face in some fashion. I have done telephone mediations where one party's on the phone, and I find it's not as effective as actually being able to see the person. Um, and, and have the parties in the room see each other as well.
0: A little psychological leverage in that?
1: Well, you, yes, you learn a lot more, and the people are more committed. I find that on the phone, you never are quite sure what they're doing on the other end. So
0: I find in my practice, one of my primary complaints is that for the most part, I do personal injury and malpractice cases. And there's always an insurance company on the other end, and the court will set up a, a pretrial settlement conference, and my client will be obliged to come, and I'll be obliged to be there. And a lot of times, the insurance companies don't want to come from Richmond or Pennsylvania or wherever they are, and they want to participate by phone. And I find that that completely eliminates any possibility of getting the case settled. And so the court often turns to us and says, well, is that okay? Will you permit that? And I used to kind of bend over and say, sure. And now I say, say, absolutely not. And generally speaking, I'll ask the judge who's going to mediate it or the lawyer, and I'll see what their opinion is. But invariably, people seem to think having all of the participants, the people with the money, the people with the decision-making capabilities is vitally important. And I gather that's your experience.
1: I agree with that completely. it, It is a much more committed process. And oftentimes, if you have people in the room, they may start with the the, uh, feeling like I'm not going to participate. I'm here because the court ordered me to be here. And suddenly they want to participate because of something one of the other parties said. And so it starts the conversation going.
0: So you underwent a great deal of training for mediation. And then I gather you embarked on having a mediation practice. How'd that go?
1: It actually has grown significantly. um, And I... I feel as if I've really been able to do a great deal through the court systems and through private mediation. I do primarily family mediation, although I am a civil mediator as well. But it's one of those things where you become known, and a lot of attorneys will refer family-based cases to me. Um, So I've learned over the years that if you're in private practice, it takes about a year and a half to two years to really build a practice where people are coming back to you because of you, or other uh, clients are referring people, and so I've been doing this for about 18 years, and it's grown significantly. And um, I added that to that my training practice as well.
0: That's I was going to touch on that. Uh, first of all, you, your office is located where?
1: I am uh, at near the Columbia Mall. I'm okay. at one zero four four zero Little Patuxent Parkway. Suite 900 in Columbia.
0: So we could walk there right now from Howard Community College.
1: We could. It did not take me long to get off the phone and get
0: over here quickly. Okay. So you mentioned something in addition to your mediation practice. You have a mediation training. What's that about?
1: Quite a while back, almost like nine or ten years ago, um, I was asked by the then existing MCPEL to co-train a family-based case with uh, Harry Fox, who was one of my trainers. And that basically got me into the training world. And since then, I've developed a 40-hour civil training that meets the requirements of Rule 17 in Maryland. I also do the two 20-hour domestic, one for child access issues and one for uh, property and financial issues that are required in order to be a court-rostered mediator in those areas. And I've expanded it to other civil areas. Um, There's a requirement that every year, mediators on a court roster must have four hours of mediation-related training, and I offer those.
0: So it sounds like there's 80 hours of training one could hypothetically have plus the four hours every year. That's quite a bit of time that would be devoted to something like that.
1: It is. It is. the. It is a significant investment of time. I try to space out the training so that people aren't spending 80 hours uh, with me. And I also do encourage my, um, whether I'm training the the 40-hour civil or either of the domestic, for people to actually perhaps train with others to get a different perspective. There are a lot of different perspectives and styles about mediation and how mediation is most
0: effective. Now in the trainings that you're offering presently, is it just you up there training them or do you have a, a cadre of people with whom you work?
1: I Generally, I, what I do is do the training portion and bring others in to coach during simulations where people pretend they're the mediator and they have role players, or to present a particular area. For example, I have mental health professionals come in and talk about child development during the child access uh, mediation training. And I have people come in and talk about the various um, financial or property issues on my property side. I I always bring people in when I don't have an expertise in the area.
0: I think that's a very prudent approach. Thank you. (laughs) So how often do you do these trainings and where do you do them?
1: Um, I do them in different areas, depending on what people need. I'm actually working on expanding my training program by moving moving to different areas, whether it's moving towards Western Maryland, down towards Annapolis. I actually met with a good friend of mine, Katie Early, down in Calvert County, who has a training room where maybe the Southern Maryland area could have, uh, we could do trainings for uh, for mediators there. Um, so I I can often go where people need the training if we can get enough people to participate in the training to make it worthwhile for the participant.
0: So does each county in the state of Maryland have kind of a roster of potential mediators, or how does that work?
1: Well, the answer is yes. Okay. You generally fill out a one application and then mail it to each of the counties you'd like to be rostered on, indicating whether you would like to be on the civil roster the child access roster, the, the the domestic financial mediation roster, or all three. Uh, those are the ones really now that are specific. Although there are for Med Mal, you have to have a special course, and for technology matters, you have there's another training that you need to take. And in in reality, most of the people who do mediations in those areas are the um, retired judges.
0: We lost a retired judge this last year, Howard Chasnow, who was the dean of the Maryland uh, Medical Malpractice Mediators and was sort of a legendary figure before he started that as a judge on our highest court, the Court of Appeals, and a circuit court judge in Prince George's County, but then really found his form after he retired from the bench and started doing those those mediations. Unfortunately, he was killed in a car accident and uh, left behind his wife, who's a federal judge, and— Anyway, it was a loss.
1: It and it really was a loss because he would he would um often say that he wasn't a mediator. He was a neutral case evaluator and a settlement person. And that would be why the the lawyers would ask for him because oh, yeah. he was very very good at what he did. Um and he was a, a great example that I often give of someone who acknowledges the process that he does. He's not going to call it mediation because he knows that's not what he's doing, but it's settlement-oriented. It's alternate dispute resolution-oriented, and he was very good at it.
0: $700 an hour, as I recall.
1: Yes, yes. He was also very expensive at it, but uh, <laughs> yes. and that's, that, that's, But it's still a lot less expensive than litigating those issues.
0: Oh, yeah. We're actually going to have one of his good friends and successors, Scott Sontag, who has an office here in Columbia on in the next few weeks. I'm trying to work him into the schedule. And I'll be intrigued to see what he has to say about kind of falling into more of that stuff in, after the demise of Howard Chaz now. Yes. But, all right. So what do you find is the trickiest area to mediate?
1: Well, in non-family civil, okay. I find anything that involves an insurance company or an insurance, ad- insurance adjuster is the most tricky okay. because there is limited room to move within the mediation process. One of the things that all trainings generally contain is the question, are all parties with authority to settle this case here? And oftentimes the answer is, I have limited authority to settle And so if the adjuster has to seek outside approval, it often makes the mediation less effective, um, so that's one of the trickiest.
0: That's what I was complaining about a little while ago. Mm-hmm. That the insurance industry, gradually across the span of my career, has moved from having adjusters who have a substantial amount of authority to making it so you know this person has up to five thousand, then they got to go to the person who has twenty five thousand, then the person who has fifty and a hundred, and so forth. And there are some major insurance companies that. Any amount that's in six figures effectively has to go to home office. And so doing a mediation with them, in my view, is generally speaking fruitless. I'm not saying I don't settle them occasionally, but it really is impeded by that. The best
1: that you can get from that type of mediation is a a limitation of the issues and a real focus on what the resolution points are. Um, And so I think that it can be helpful from that perspective, but, um, but it also is very frustrating because you're not going to be able to settle it that day. And that's really one of the benefits of mediation, especially if you have all the attorneys present, because they're there to answer your questions that day. That you don't have to, in family law, often in child access cases, the attorneys don't attend. And I'm very careful about- Oh, that's interesting. Well, I think it's, it's part of it is that um, there's a sense that when it comes to kid-related issues, that is more uniquely particular to the families. Okay. And so the law does not help as much- When it comes to property distribution and, you know, retirement assets, the house and things of that sort, a lot more of the law comes into play. And therefore, it's very helpful to have the attorneys present, because if there's a question or there's information that they need that the attorney might have, they're right there to provide it versus me having to give people homework in between which is also still very effective but it means that that they they come back down the road and i think that sometimes once you've got the momentum going it's it's great
0: so it sounds like mediation isn't just you come in the two parties are there with their lawyers, and it's one afternoon or one period of time. It sounds like it's a process that's ongoing. Is that a fair statement?
1: Yes, especially in family law okay. issues. It, it's oftentimes people need more information. And when there are children involved, I'm, I try to be very careful that the people understand completely what it is that they are discussing and what they're agreeing to. Because oftentimes terms, legal terms, will throw people off, you know what is legal custody? What is you know a primary physical? What is sole custody? Um, and so, uh, with those, I like to make sure that they have an opportunity to talk to an attorney. And if they're pro se, I often say pro se
0: meaning being their own lawyer,
1: right? Self represented. Okay. Yes, and so they don't have the benefit of a lawyer giving them legal advice. I often recommend that they talk to someone, whether it's their pastor, whether it's a mental health professional, or or an attorney because I think it's important for them to understand what it is that they may be saying they're willing to agree to, because you're basically affecting children for the rest of their lives.
0: I mean, I would think that's an interesting dynamic, because as I understand it, the paramount interest is, quote, the best interests of the child, end quote, as opposed to the interest of mom or dad or grandma or, or that kind of thing.
1: Yes, yes. And
0: I would think there are sometimes parents who are... I don't know how to put this quite, but not as interested in their children as they might be at a future time and that they may well agree to things that are not, it may be in harmony with the ex-husband and the ex-wife, but are not in harmony with the best interests of the child.
1: Yes, and that can be, that can be one of the difficulties in family-based mediation is when parties come to an agreement. For example, the parties live an hour and a half apart, but, but one parent is going to be driving the child or children to school. That's an hour and a half travel for that child to school. Is that really in the best interest of the child? there in those kinds of conversations are often often more in depth in child access because I often do what what would that look like? Let's talk about what that would look like for your child. And I do talk about parenting time because even if you only have alternating weekends, it's parenting time. The long and the short of it is parenting time means you getting your kids to the activities that they are participating in and that they want to do, not you get to decide what happens all the time. I mean, as the a, as a mother of a travel soccer player and a travel cheerleader, there's a point in time in your life where it's not your life. It's you driving the kids to where they need to be. Sure. And since I took helicopter mom to a hovercraft level, my kids never went to tournaments without one parent or the other.
0: I understand. I understand. So if you have parents who are agreeing to something that seems foolish to you or detrimental to the child, how do you get them to – climb into the child's mind and see how that would be perceived or how it would be lived by the child.
1: That's when I say, what would it look like? And what would that mean for the child? And how is your child about getting up really at the crack of dawn? And and what would that mean for activities? One of the most difficult things for me as a parent to see is when parents move farther apart from each other. And so in order for a parent to have a quality relationship with the child, if they're not the, not the primary custodial parent, they're going to be picking up the child and taking them back to their house for the weekend. Well, what, what about when that child gets involved in activities? You know, are they going to only see ev- go every other weekend? Are they only going to go to every other game, every other practice, every other, you know, marching band performance? Those are the kinds of things that I ask parents to kind of take a look at when they're deciding these things. And the other truth is that if you don't live close to your child and you're not the primary parent, eventually the child's not going to be, want to be with either parent. They're going to want to do what they want to do with their friends and with their, their children. So it's really when the kids are young that, the, that that type of separation, you should really be developing you know, the relationship with the non-primary parent.
0: So how do you go by that?
1: I ask a lot of questions. Okay. And I really do, you know, when I do my mediation trainings, I say live in the question. Because the other thing we have to be worried about is what are our biases? You know, what do I think as a mom should be done isn't relevant in that room. Some it's things w-
0: may not be feasible for people too.
1: Right. And the other thing is too, I you know oftentimes they're court-ordered cases. And I wonder how many of us as parents would really like to have someone looking over their shoulder every for every little piece of thing we did as a parent. We all make mistakes. We all learn from the mistakes. My two girls survived and they've been launched. I'm not telling you their ages because that would date me. But the long and the short of it is that, you know, when parents have people looking in, they're under a microscope and they need to be aware of that when they're in court. And mediation is a way to remove the the microscope, but they still have to take a look at what it is that they're agreeing to. And I find parents respond quite often to, well, what would it mean and what would be an alternative?
0: So people kind of get caught up in their own life and sometimes lose perspective on how this would affect their kids.
1: Right. Oftentimes I say to people, you need to take your dislike or hate of the other person out of this and love your child more. And that's a that's a mantra of many, many mediators that do child access cases.
0: That's an odd phenomenon. I mean, I know it's it's widespread, but that people who loved someone in the past and married them would then hate them so much later. And I understand there's, you know, Mm -hmm. betrayals of different kinds that can lead to that. But how do you deal with that?
1: I usually relate, try and relate it to the grieving cycle. You know, everyone talks about it when someone dies. The problem with divorce and separation is, It's not starting at the same place. There's someone who's been thinking about it for a while. And they've started to go through the grieving cycle for the relationship. And then they tell the other side. And it may be through an affair. It may be simply saying, this isn't working for me anymore. But they already have moved on. And now this other person, whether they should have seen it happening or not, are suddenly faced with starting the grieving cycle. And usually, the first part of the grieving cycle is denial and then anger. So the ang- some people get stuck in the anger part and trying to help them understand that you need to work beyond it, especially if you have children.
0: Do you tell them that? Yes,
1: I do. I do, think they, if-
0: do they sometimes see it and acknowledge it or how, how does that go?
1: Well, sometimes if I'm caucusing with the one who's already moved on, I'll say, can you give them a little bit of time to kind of absorb this and take a look at it? Because you are all the way over here and they need to catch up with you. And they may never catch up, but can we just give them a little time to do that? And oftentimes they'll, you know, because they want me to like them, um, they often will say, No, no, I see what you're saying. And oftentimes it works, and we're able to work through the issues. And sometimes they're very sincere that they didn't look at it that way. We all look at things from our own worldview. And um part of the training aspect of my practice is I do a lot of research and I've really, you know, come to look at things like confirmation bias and things like social that social
0: science research and yes. psychology and yes. and presumably law too yeah oh, well yes law <laughs> always law keeping up
1: on that but it's interesting to think that you know i may look at the same thing differently than you simply because of where i was born and raised you know i often say i'm genetically liberal because my great grandmother was Ruth Standish Baldwin who was a founder of the National Urban League and my first cousin twice removed, my father, my grandfather's cousin, was Roger Baldwin, the founder of the ACLU. Wow! So, although I'm not quite as liberal as they are, the or they were, the the key thing about that is that I might look at the same facts differently, and therefore, someone who's a little bit more conservative might not agree. Someone who was raised in a very strict family may look at things one way. And I was in a more, you know, kind of loosey goosey liberal family where my mother would open the back door and out we'd run in northern New Jersey and come back when we were hungry.
0: You grew up with Bruce Springsteen?
1: I did. I did grow up. He was, no, he wasn't my next door neighbor, but he grew up very close to me.
0: So do you find that the mediation process changes people's? outlooks on the breakup of their relationship, their relationships with their children, their relationships with their ex-spouses? I think the answer
1: to that is yes. If people are receptive to the process, they often will at least acknowledge that their perspective is different than the other person's and that they'll never change the other person's perspective. So how do you make it work for the kids? And I've seen that happen where I may have done two or three two-hour mediation sessions with them. And by the third one, they're sitting in the receptionary talking to each other. Wow. And that's, I think, a big step forward for anyone. That's an enormous
0: step forward. Mm -hmm. So do the kids ever have input in any of this?
1: Not usually. I mean, most psychologists, I think, would say that you shouldn't ask a child what they want to do or where they want to live. Once the law does say that once a child reaches the age of 16, he he or she can file their own case. They can also file for, um, uh, I guess, a divorce from their parents as well. Uh, Emancipation. Emancipation, That was the term I was was searching for in my brain. Um, But generally speaking, kids really do want the parents to make up the decision, and You know, I tell parents all the time, all they really want is two of you to make up your mind and then, you know, tell them what the answer is going to be.
0: So there are occasions where the court appoints lawyers directly for the kids Mm -hmm. to to work things out. Do do you have input from from the lawyers in those situations?
1: Actually, I'm – I work as a best interest attorney.
0: okay. Well, um, what does that mean generally? and how do you end up being a best interest attorney?
1: A best interest attorney there there are three types of attorneys that can be appointed for the kids. One is a best interest attorney where you represent kids generally under the age of 13 or 14, where they get to talk to you, but you ultimately tell the court what you think would be the best for these children. Normally, what happens is uh, it, it's identified as a need and the court will ask the attorneys involved, who would you like? Or the attorneys come in with a name.
0: Okay. So, so have you seen mediations actually bring families back together?
1: Over the course of the past 18 years, it doesn't happen that often, but I've actually had at least three cases where they, where they terminated mediation because they reconciled. And so that's, to me, that's in many ways the best result. The, but often parents will realize they're better co-parents than they were husband and wife. Okay. And that's where I think ultimately they can learn. And mediation does provide a forum for having those kinds of conversations. Although I do tell people I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor. I gotcha. And if they really looks like they could benefit from that, I'll I'll, I'll refer them to co-parenting counseling to talk about. So those I issues. guess
0: mediation comes about typically when people are reasonably far down the road of at least one of the marital partners wanting to leave the relationship. Yes. Yes. So is there any provision? for you know young couples who are having trouble and i know that there's religious groups that try and help them and pastors mm-hmm. and priests and that sort of thing is there any place for mediation in trying to help young couples realize the issues they're grappling with are not insurmountable and that sort of thing
1: well, the answer is yes there are um groups i know the national family resiliency center who is is based primarily in howard county is one group that has therapists that that, that can have those conversations Uh, I know, as you indicated, religious groups um, benefit marriage counselors. That's exactly what it's about, uh, primarily. The the other thing is that I uh, often—and I've actually talked with a couple people, and we may be putting the program together. There's a movement now, mostly out in the West, where there are people who are providing Marriage 101 courses in college or in community colleges— where they talk about the various issues from a practical perspective. Is um, so that's know,
0: something you could hypothetically do here at your home community college, Howard Community College?
1: Absolutely. It's one of the things I was going to approach the community college about. And basically, it's a course that, whether you're in a relationship or not, it talks about what marriage generally is, what are the issues that come up in marriages, and as a domestic lawyer, the types of things that create a breakdown in the marital relationship.
0: Well, that sounds like something for a future episode of Everyday Law. I'd very much like to thank Cecilia Pays from the Mediation Center. And what was your email address? Again, please. It's
1: cc at agreeonit.com.
0: If anybody needs a mediator, Cecilia has a remarkable reputation here in Howard County and statewide. And I'd like to thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell and see you next week.